everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have former Illinois Governor George Ryan, who went from being a supporter of the death penalty to ending it in the state of Illinois. Unfortunately, uh, Maurice Posley, the journalist who helped him write his uh, book, uh, couldn't join us today, but uh, welcome, Governor. Thanks, David. I'm glad to have the opportunity to converse with you folks out on the West Coast. So how do you go from strong proponent of the death penalty to a strong opponent? Well, it was, uh, it was a tough decision, but uh, the right one. <clears throat> Uh, it's uh, kind of a long story, but back in 1977, when we, you know, the Supreme Court, I think it was in 76, <clears throat> eliminated the death penalty altogether and, and, and sentenced everybody that was on death row to life in prison without parole. And Illinois was no exception. And then a few years later, uh, they decided that maybe uh, the Supreme Court said, if you follow some of our rules, you can uh, reenact your own death penalties again. So I was a member of the Illinois House at the time, a fairly new member, been there a couple of years, and, and uh, got an opportunity to, the day the vote came up to, to reinstate the death penalty in Illinois, uh, I voted to green on my switch to say should reinstate the penalty. One of the more liberal fellows that, uh, from Chicago, by, uh, represented by the name of Bob Mann, got up and asked a very question uh, that, that seemed to kind of ring home. He said, for those of you that are voting green here today, how many of you would be willing to throw the switch? Now, that was kind of a question that made me pause for a little bit and say, well, I think we need the death penalty, but I sure don't want to throw the switch. Uh, you know, maybe somebody else would want to, but not me. And, uh, but I thought that the, that the law was necessary. I was a believer in the time that it was a deterrent to crime. Uh, which was false, but but I believed it at that time. So I voted yes, and did it little did I know, 20 years later, I had my hand on the switch. Uh, so I uh, had to make a de determination whether somebody was or an easy decision. And that's basically how I got there, was uh, that the, the, the case came up, uh, we had a case a few years ago named Anthony Porter. Anthony Porter was a little guy that didn't have very much education and had some problems and was convicted of a murder of a couple in a, in a park in the south side of Chicago that had gone a drug deal that had gone bad, supposedly. And uh, he uh, had witnesses that said they saw him do it and all kinds of crazy things. 
he sat on death row for like 16 years. And I had been just elected governor pretty much in November and on February of the following year, I was with my wife at the mansion watching the Chicago news in Springfield, Illinois. And here comes Anthony Porter that just been released from jail and he'd been exonerated of all wrongdoing and released from prison. But the problem was he only spent 16 or 18 years there. And I said to my wife that, that day, I said, how in the hell does that happen in America? They put some poor guy that's not very smart and he's got some problems, uh, put him on death row for 16 or 18 years and then say, oops, we made a mistake. Something's wrong. It's gotta, we gotta look at this thing a little bit more. And then to add uh, a little salt to the whole thing, it wasn't the system that found the correction that needed to be made to release Anthony Porter. It was a group of journalism students from Northwestern University, professor, who put together a group of his students to go find the real killer uh, of the person that Anthony Porter was charged of, uh, the killer of the people who were charged, charged killing them. You know what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah. At any rate, we had uh, the, the students found out, they hired a an investigator, and they went out and they found the real killer, a guy by the name of Al Story Simon, and he was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they got him to sign a, a con on tape and uh, con confess to the crime. Now, the system didn't have anything to do with it. It was the journalism students in his class, if they hadn't decided to make that a case, Anthony Porter would have been dead and gone. And uh, that even bothered me more to say that that's, that just is a possibility. And that's when I started to look at it. Then to make a long story short, once the Tribune started to get involved, they came up with a lot of reasons why the death penalty ought to not be around too much longer. And that was to jailhouse snitches and uh, overzealous prosecutors and terrible defense lawyers and uh, you know uh, intimidation from police officers to confess to false confessions uh, for crimes that they were trying to solve. And uh, I had a look at that and said, well, there's just something wrong with this system and uh, it's got to be fixed. That's when I called a moratorium on the death penalty. And I said, there'll be no more killings in Illinois as long as I'm governor until we can find out what's wrong with the system and get it fixed. So that's kind of a, how I got started in this whole thing as an advocate of the death penalty. Uh, I turned pretty quick after I had a hard look at it and had an opportunity to get some facts instead of just all the nonsense that usually comes out of it. I, I found it really interesting when you were talking about talking. Uh, the fact uh, that somebody in 1977 asked uh, how you would react with your uh, finger on the switch or whether you would pull the switch. You really agonized. Um, you describe in great detail uh, the one guy I can't think of his name who you uh, who did get executed under you, uh, but you really agonized over that decision, and and that that seemed to really uh, weigh on you too. Well, it wasn't that just that case. You know, when you have to make a determination whether somebody's going to live or die, and it's in your hands, and you're the guy that has to make the decision, that's pretty heavy stuff. And uh, I wasn't very comfortable, even after I found out all of these errors and things that are wrong with the system that we were trying to correct. And then along comes a guy that was a terrible guy. Uh, he, he did a lot of terrible things and was probably guilty, but 
the problem was that we needed to find out about what we're going to do about all the things that were wrong with the death penalty. And uh, but I executed him. I, it's the only man and the last guy in Illinois to get executed. And that's when I said, I'm not doing this again. We're either going to fix the system or uh, we're, I'm not going to be involved. So uh, that's the way it happened. And then, of course, uh, time went by and I formed a commission that, that rec made 85 recommendations to fix the death penalty in Illinois that would lessen the, the, the impact of a innocent person being executed. Didn't make it perfect because you can't have a perfect bill. It's just impossible to have. And of course, if you can't have a perfect bill, why do you want to have one? If you're going to have an imperfect bill to kill somebody, it's got to be not imperfect. It's got to be correct. So uh, that's that's how I got to the uh, to the to, to uh, the point where I commuted the sentences of 167 people on death row in Illinois uh, to life in prison. And uh, I, I would do it again under the same circumstances. Would you say it's the possibility of executing an innocent person, or what would you say is the biggest factor in, in kind of your decision? Well, I wanted to make sure the system was right. I still was about a half a believer, and I thought it, it could be corrected. But the problem was the commission that I appointed, which was a blue ribbon commission made up of the, the right people, and uh, they came back with 85 recommendations. It was an election year. I had a Republican House and a Democrat Senate. And uh, no, I had it, it was the other way. I had a Democrat House and a Republican Senate. And the Republican Senate, I'm a Republican, gave me more trouble than, uh, than all of the Democrats combined about my commutation. And uh, it became kind of difficult to, to be involved in it and try to get it worked out. The, the recommendations that were presented to the Senate, they passed uh, one of them, I think, it was just one of those minor recommendations that had been made. The House passed the only one that really, not the only one, but the only one they passed was uh, the, uh, the taping of confessions. And uh, that was good, but it was, uh, you know, they left everything else. And the problem was it was an election year and uh, they Republicans didn't want to look like they were soft on crime. So they just kind of let the whole situation die with the 85 recommendations that I made. I had a few months left in office and that's when I decided that I didn't want to leave office and then pick up the paper after I was out three or four months later and find out some poor innocent guy got, uh, got convicted because I didn't do what I was supposed to do or look after it. So I just said, you know, unless we pass these laws to make these corrections, I'm going to commute all of these people that are on death row to life in prison. Now, most people didn't believe I'd do it. And uh, I wasn't sure for a while whether I would or not. But, and I agonized over it a lot. But I finally decided that it's the right thing to do, so I did it. And uh, like I said, I'd do it again if I had to. Do you at this point believe that the system can be corrected or do you believe that the death penalty just has to end? I think it's impossible to correct. It's, it's gotta be perfect. And I don't know how you have a perfect system. Uh, I mean, you know, when you talk about the chain of evidence and, oh, well, some guy slipped and didn't, didn't present this and this guy, you know, if we didn't, hadn't done that way, well, he would have lived or whatever. Uh, it, it's just, if you're gonna have a thing that's gonna kill people, it's, it's gotta be perfect. And it's not possible to have with human beings. So I think that frankly, as I 
kicked back now and then and did at the time. Life in prison is a pretty bad sentence. Uh, it's something I don't think anybody would really want to go through, especially if you're young or even in middle age, if you want to spend the rest of your life in an eight by 10 cell, uh, you know, wondering what's going to happen to you. So uh, I think that was a, a good decision. And, and of course, one that uh, I, I was proud that I did. Uh, frankly, I was, I was glad I had the opportunity to make the contribution. You know, I uh, uh, another part of what turned my into this, uh, my neighbor who lived right behind my home, uh, inherited a lot of money uh, from his family. And he owned some property. He bought a Frank Lloyd Wright house here in my town, went to Europe and got all the stuff back into it, the normal original state and then with the glass and things. And uh, he got a call one night about midnight that somebody had broken into his Frank Lloyd Wright house. And would he please come over so the police could, that they were the police and would he come over to the site and uh, sign some papers. So he got out of bed and uh, went down to his garage, opened the door. There's a fellow there, put a gun on him, threw him in the trunk, took him out to the edge of town, had a, 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 a hole in the ground, dug a, a grave, put him in a box that he built, covered it all up with dirt, went back and called his wife and said, I want a million bucks in uh, ransom and don't call the police. I was Lieutenant Governor of the state at the time. And uh, when I flew home that night, uh, troopers met me, they said, your neighbor's been kidnapped and uh, he, he's, uh, they can't find him. And so uh, it became a, a story here, you know, a little town of 35,000 that I live in that was the big big news of the of the year. Still, is a lot of news, but uh, we finally got the you know, confession out of him that he that he buried this friend of mine and my neighbor. And of course, when they when they found him, he was dead. Now uh, that was a, a story that you know, if you're going to have a death penalty, that's one that I would probably vote for because because the guy I knew personally and when they, when they put him through was just terrible. But I think that there's still, there's no way to make it perfect, a perfect death penalty. So why have a law that's not perfect, especially if you're gonna take somebody's life? You know, a lot of people end up in your position uh, and they see problems in the system, but most people haven't acted on them. What, what do you think made you unique in this respect? Well, the fact that uh, this little guy, Anthony Porter, uh, you know, he uh, he was almost executed. If they hadn't been for his defense team and went before a judge a few days before he was to be executed and asked for a delay so they could test his competency and his mental abilities. And uh, he, he would have been he would have been executed. And uh, I just decided that, the, you know, the, we can't have a system on the books in our state or any place else, frankly. You know, uh, right now there still are 28 states in America, plus the federal government, that employ the death penalty. And uh, it's uh, one of those situations where the United States is, uh, remains to be one of the very uh, few Western democracies that still uses the death penalty. And they ought to, be, they ought to abolish it. It ought to be gone and uh, done away with. And uh, I'm still kind of working on that as I... Uh, live out to be an old man. Um, 
in your book, it, it seems like a really slow evolution where you came to this conclusion. Um, it, it, is, that, is that accurate? Um, what, was this kind of a long, slow process? Yes, it was. Because I did execute one guy, Andy Corcrealis, who was a terrible guy. I mean, he just was, a, I mean, it, he did some terrible crimes. He used to pull women up off the street and put them in his van with four or five of his buddies, I think one of his brothers, and uh, just do terrible things to young women and then throw them out on the street thinking they were dead. And uh, they left a couple of them alive time, and that's how we caught them. Uh, but, uh, but, but still, the idea that I had to give the nod and sign a paper that said, we're going to kill you, uh, was not very pleasant for me to do. And when I did it, I said that it would be the last one of that that would happen while I was governor, and it was. Uh, but uh, Anthony, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Andrew Corkialis was a bad. At any rate, we got Anthony Corkialis. He uh, had a lot of support. He was Greek. He had the Greek Orthodox Church, and uh, they were all over me every day to keep him alive and not, not execute him. But uh, I, I finally did the, what I had to do. But he was the last folk stuff. He was the last person to die as a, a, executed in Illinois. Uh, after I left office, the next governor came along and uh, maintained the moratorium and then put some legislation in to eliminate the death penalty. So that's why we don't have it in Illinois anymore. Um, so in, in terms of the rest of the system, um, it, do you think that Illinois is worse than other states, or do you think it, it's kind of, you just know more about it than other states, but it's kind of the same? Worse in what way? Uh, like more problems with wrongful convictions, more problems with uh, corruption and things like that. Well, yeah, there's a lot of problems, like I said, with wrongful convictions. Uh, and of course we get the, the Northwestern Center here that's got a big operation that works on that all the time. The good one that organized, I think a fellow by the name of Rob Warden started years ago. Uh, but uh, no, there's still some problems with the whole system, uh, especially, uh, you know, where, where the death penalty was involved. And we had a, we had a police captain named John Burge who uh, he tortured young uh, black men to confess falsely uh, to convictions and crimes and murders that they didn't do. And he cost the state and the city millions and millions of dollars with all of his false stuff after we got caught doing it. He went to prison, he since died. But uh, I mean, it was uh, it was one of those situations where, you know, he, 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 the, the police get out a lot of pressure when they get a bad case uh, to, to get it solved. And sometimes they go a little overbound, so at least they did with John with John Burge, and uh, he got uh, he got caught doing it and uh, paid the price. Yeah, we interviewed uh, Flint Taylor a few weeks ago on this uh, show. Um, Flint Taylor, who uh, who of course sued uh, John Burge. Yeah, I, I don't I don't ring the bell, but. Uh, I've been a god from it for years, and, and I'm getting to be an old man, and I forget once in a while now. No problem. Um, but how, how, I mean, can you talk about, uh, you know, the Burge thing is really incredible in terms of 
the length of time that he was involved and, and the amount of damage that they actually did. How, how big a role did that play in, in the decision to end the death penalty? Well, it, it just emphasized the need when you find out that, you know, you got a guy that's, that's torturing people uh, to confess to crimes they didn't commit, uh, that they're, they're going to be sentenced to death or maybe sentenced to death or even put in, li- in prison for, the, for life when they're innocent. Uh, it, uh, it, it's, a, it's a situation that just kind of haunts you a little bit. Uh, not a little bit, a lot. Or at, least, at least it did me. I mean, I even gave her second thoughts about the, uh, executing Porky Allison. He was a terrible guy. And I, you know, I wanted to make sure he was, wasn't innocent like uh, Anthony Porter. Now, how many people did, did you end up outright pardoning versus uh, commuting their sentences to life? 167. Or maybe I think it was 167. Yeah. Now, yeah. did you like go through their files for each one, or did you? Have I, to I carried that, the files. Or? I did. I carried the files. I hired. I hired a, a former FBI guy that was with the uh, United States District Attorney's Office in Chicago uh, to work with me on the cases. We went over them every day. When I wherever I went, I had a handful of files to look on. If I was riding in the car from Southern Illinois to Chicago or flying, I always had to a few death penalty cases on my hands and, uh, and, and read every case, interviewed the families of both the victims and the uh, perpetrators and uh, met their families and talked with them and uh, uh, you know, came to the conclusion that uh, the death penalty was no good. It really didn't create crime and it was unfair and unjust and, 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 and just rampant with errors. And you said you went back and forth as to whether or not to commute everyone's sentence. What finally uh, made the decision for you to uh, to do that? Uh, I decided that the, the General Assembly didn't want to make any recommendations specifically of a committee that spent almost a year putting together 85 solid recommendations to make sure or to at least uh, protect innocent people that might be convicted and uh, that were innocent and give them a chance with their, with a fair law. But because it was an election year, basically, uh, they all thought that they did, that at least the Republicans didn't want to be uh, soft on crime. And the leader of the Republican Party was a, was a pro-death penalty guy. He was, uh, you know, he was really an ex-Marine and he was a hardcore guy. A good guy, but he just really believed in the death penalty. So it became uh, one of those things. Like I said, it got I, I got down to where I had a few a few weeks left in office, and uh, nobody uh, was going to make any changes in in taking the recommendations of my commission. So I said, I don't want to get up in the morning after some morning when I'm retired, and uh, find out that some poor innocent guy got uh, killed because I didn't do the right thing. And the only way I could do that was was to just say there'll be no more executions and and uh, commute their sentences, and uh, it worked. And what was the reaction like when that happened? Oh boy, oh boy! I was called every name by all the prosecutors. You know, we got 102 counties and prosecutors in every county, Republicans and Democrats, 
I was violating the Constitution, you know, the rights of individuals, everything you can think of uh, came down on me. So, uh, uh, but it was, it was okay. I didn't, I, I, like I said, uh, uh, I, uh, I feel good about what I did and I would do it again under the same circumstances. Did you end up talking to families of victims after that? No. No. So, so you no. never talked to anyone after? The families of the victims were were really tough to deal with. I mean, they were very, they were, they were tough on me. I mean, they, uh, I met with them and they threw stuff at me from at the podium, uh, books and pop bottles when I meet with them. And I, uh, and I met with the families of the, of the, of the charged, of the, of the convicted. Uh, I met with their kids and their grandkids. And, and uh, I just decided that there wasn't much real advantage in uh, having a death penalty. Uh, it doesn't solve the thing. We got we, when you put a person in jail for the rest of his life, you've committed the, the same action that takes them off the street like death does. So that's what we want to do: get them off the street so they don't do it again or or, or, or continue to do it. So uh, uh, that's that was. I mean, that was it was a tough decision, but like I said, I think it was the right one. Uh, it was tough for me to, to do, as I told you about my neighbor. Uh, because his family all wanted me to let those, have, have these people executed that were involved in his capture. Uh, but uh, they didn't speak to me for uh, a long time, but we're friends now again. So uh, they, they, they see the light. That's the way it is. Uh, did you ever talk to any of the people that uh, you commuted their sentence or you pardoned? Uh, you mean after I did it? Yeah. No, I haven't. I have not. I, I, I retired, as a matter of fact. Right. Yeah. So you never met with anyone afterwards? No. No, not specifically. And I followed the cases that were, uh, that still came, you know. Um, to, like I said, there's still 28 states in the United States who got the death penalty. And if it was as bad as one, and you know what else? Uh, a person that uh, the average uh, fellow or person that gets convicted and sent to jail uh, spends about 15 years waiting to decide whether they're going to stick him with a needle and kill him or let him live or what they're going to do. 15 years they wait for that to happen. And a quarter of that group uh, will die of uh, really natural causes before they get the chance to execute him. So, I mean, here they sit there for like Anthony Porter, 15 years of this guy's life. And he, he was a poor, poor, just, a, you know, he, he was an indigent. He, he didn't have a lot of education and he didn't understand a lot of things, but he wasn't a killer. He probably was a, was a crook and stole things and did things and did what he had to do to stay alive and do, but he didn't kill anybody. And uh, there's a lot of people like that. We got cases after case that I studied. A uh, case with a fellow up in northwestern uh, uh, Illinois. His family were farmers and they had a farmstead. They sold vegetables and stuff on the highways and they had a motorcycle shop that they sold parts for. And uh, this guy was kind of a different son and he had, you know, he had the long hair and tattoos. And he used to work hard in the farm and then go out at night and, and, and get pretty well lit up and come home and go to bed get up the next morning and work hard. 
but he didn't bother anybody. When he went home one night, couldn't find his dad. He looked around and they found him with his throat slit. Couldn't find his mother. So they looked around and they found her with her throat slit. Needless to say, the police came in because of his appearance and he was a drinker and everything. They said, you know, well, uh, if you would have done this, how would you have done it? Or would you do it similar or something like that? You know, the cops, they, they, they quizzed him for like 21 hours without any breaks. And he finally said, oh, yeah, I guess I did do it. He confessed falsely. And uh, it came to pass that uh, the FBI had a, an undercover fella in a motorcycle squad up in Wisconsin uh, that uh, confessed to, to one of the others. They sat around the fire. And they had an undercover FBI agent in the group. And these guys committed, confessed that they killed the, 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 the parents and laughed about doing it. And that the fact that this poor guy, the son, got the blame. Well, as soon as that tape was played, where he was released from jail, Gary Gauger was his name. And uh, Gary is back. He's got a little family now. And he's cleaned up his act. And he said, you're doing OK. But he sat on death row for a few years. And uh, that's, I mean, just can you imagine sitting on death row for 15 years, waiting for somebody every morning when you wake up, say, is today the day they're going to juice me? I mean, I just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, uh, especially for an, you know, if you're innocent, that's one thing. Uh, if, you're, if you're guilty, well, you're probably going to expect it. But boy, it's tough if you're innocent, I'll tell you, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it would seem to be tough no matter what, um, you know, wondering if if they're going to kill you or not, um, that, that doesn't seem like a very, uh, pleasant experience. No, you're right. I can't imagine doing it. Um, all spelled out in my book. I, I, I got a book that, uh, uh, called, uh, until I could be sure, uh, with a moral certainty, uh, that, uh, nobody innocent was going to die from the death penalty in Illinois while I was governor, uh, when that happens. So uh, my book is out, uh, and uh, I would hope that you have some listeners that might want to read it. Definitely. Um, do we have any idea how many innocent people have been exonerated from death row no. in Illinois? No, no, there's no. No, everybody, you know, that's one of those things that everybody, they, they want to keep it quiet. Not everybody, but they, 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 the people that are uh, against the death penalty or for the death penalty, they all got their opinions about those things. But there's never any real... I don't know how you can tell, frankly. Uh, there, there are some, I'm sure, it has to be. But nobody ever wants to put a number on it. And also, you you mentioned uh, false confessions. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are, are like, well, why would somebody confess to something that they didn't do? But we know that happens a lot. It happens a lot. Because I'll tell you why. They, they put these people in a room, and they do everything in the world to them, to get them to, to sign a confession. I mean, they put uh, typewriter bags over their head. They stick guns in their ears and in their mouth and tell them they're going to pull the clicker. And then they keep them there for hour on hour until they finally say, where do I sign to get out of this place? I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm hungry. I'm tired. And if you just sign right here, we'll let you go home. Well, that's, you know, the government can lie to you all day long and there's nothing wrong with it. The, the, the prosecutors can, can lie to you all the time, but you can't lie to them or they'll put you in jail. So uh, it's, uh, it's, listen, we're just happy to be rid of it in Illinois, I'm sure. I know I am. 
and I would like to see the like to see the federal government get rid of it too. It ought to be abolished. Well, I want to thank you for coming on our show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. This is former governor of Illinois, George Ryan. Uh, He's been joining us and talking about his book that's been out recently, uh, Until I Could Be Sure, uh, which I've read and would highly recommend uh, reading. It's a good read. It gives you a lot of insight into uh, why uh, the governor made the decisions he did. Uh, This has been Everyday Injustice, and I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.